Welcome back to Something Private, a podcast for Southeast Asian women by Southeast Asian women, exploring conversations around health, the self, community and love. My name is Nicole and I am your producer and host. Before we carry on with today's episode, I'd like to give a shout out to It's Your Life SG, a HPV prevention campaign led by MSD Pharma Singapore for teaming up with us. Human papillomavirus or HPV infection is extremely common. There are more than 14 million new infections in the US each year and more than 80% of sexually active adults will be infected with HPV in their lifetime. Some types can cause health problems including genital warts and cancers, but you have the power to protect yourself and that begins right now. Find out if you are at risk of HPV and what you can do to protect yourself over at It's Your Life SG. That's It's Your Life SG. Or tune in to our episode, My Mum and I Consult a Doctor About HPV to understand more. Read up about HPV, visit a doctor for advice and your future self will thank you. It's our last episode of Season 4 and we've got a really special one. As Singapore's youngest current serving member of parliament and a young mother of two, Raisa Khan from the Workers' Party has had an eventful first year serving as an opposition MP. As someone who's only two years her junior, I felt like our lives could not be more different. I was really curious to hear her story, what it's like joining politics with barely any prior experience, her thoughts on being a representative for Minority Voices, how she coped with the investigations over a year ago for her online comments about race and religion, and her present determination in bringing up more controversial issues like sexuality education in Parliament. Hi, I'm Raisa, a member of Parliament for Sengkang GRC. Hi Raisa, thanks for being here, joining us today. I usually like to start my episode asking um, my guests to share something private about themselves. <laughs> sure! Something about me that nobody really knows um, is that I love young adult fiction. Interesting. Yeah, and I still read it to this day. <laughs> like, is it like your guilty pleasure? Yeah, kind of. Um, and I love like chick lit young adult fiction as well um but most recently i've really been into um like dragons okay. and magic and kind of um delving into like those types of worlds i think the first kind of um young adult like magic fiction that i read was aragon mm-hmm. so the whole inheritance series <laughs> it's very nerdy <laughs> I enjoyed it. <laughs> Did you? Yeah, good. So um, I even recently just kind of finished all the books again. Okay. Yeah, just to, um, I know it's like kind of relaxing for me. But then um, I think like if you want to kind of upgrade from that, um, I love um, Wise Man's Fear by Patrick Rothfuss as well. Mm. Yeah. She's a reader. Yeah. <laughs> of science fiction. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for being on the show. Very excited to have yeah. you here. I really, really wanted to do an episode with you for a really long time. I think one thing that um, is most shocking to me or that I feel is really amazing is that our age gap is not that big. I'm only, I think, like two, three years younger than you. Mm-hmm. And yet, I don't know, you feel a lot more adult than me. <laughs> I'm not, trust me. I've, I, up till a year ago, we were still like sleeping on the mattress on our floor. <laughs> that makes me better. But you are currently now... Um, the youngest serving member of parliament in Singapore at the age of 27. It's been a year since you entered politics. A lot has happened since then. I think I want to ask, first and foremost, how has the year been for you? 
Um, so it's definitely been a tough journey, I think, um, and it's been full of ups and downs. But I'm really grateful that I've had a really incredible team around me. So I think we've built um, a really great group of people serving residents in Compass Vale. Um, and also, of course, um, assisting me in, in different things. But it's definitely been a year full of growth. I've learned a lot and I'm, I'm definitely going to keep learning. Mm. Tell me a bit more about your journey entering politics. When did that start? So I volunteered with the party for about a year and a half um, before I was approached to run as a candidate. Before, I never really saw myself as entering politics. I always thought I would kind of stick with the area that I know, which is in um, activism and, mm -hmm. and civil society. Basically, what I love the most is running programs and projects with communities. So I never really saw myself as, a, as really even a politician. And even now, I don't. But it still kind of shocks me that, you know, this is the title that I have. Mm -hmm. My journey hasn't been linear. Um, I think it's never been my goal to be a member of parliament. But of course, now that I am, I take it really seriously and, and I'm really grateful for the opportunity. Mm. Was yeah. there that one moment where, or what was that moment where, you know, you were approached and you were like, okay, like this is something that I would seriously consider doing? Yeah, I, I spoke to it um, with my husband and my family and um, especially my dad, you know, he, he was really supportive. And my husband as well, he was like, you know, this is a really great opportunity to um, include your voice and, mm. and the people um, you might represent their views in the conversation, even if it's just in the conversation during elections. I mean, my objective was to ensure that... Um, our voices were included in, in the conversation. So I think the conversation did change and it was really lovely to see a lot of young people coming together and like creating all these resources for elections. On that note about, you know, having more young people mm -hmm. involved in these particular elections, I feel like, I don't know, this whole election was really, it felt very unexpected to me and it was my first time voting as well. As oh, congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> it was very exciting. Uh, yeah, it's so exciting to be for I remember my first time voting, it was really exciting. Yeah. yeah. I was like nervous, like queuing and everything. Yeah. I guess on that vein, what were some of the things that, you know, you had anticipated that, you know, entering politics would be like versus like how it actually like panned out, I guess like expectation versus reality, right? I mean, for me, I expected, I of course I expected like personal attacks, but I thought they were going to be like about my age. Which surprisingly, there weren't, yeah. there weren't many. Yeah. yeah, so I was, I was kind of pleasantly surprised by that. Um, but of course, other things happened that I, you know, no one predicted. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The fact that you are currently the younger serving MP and... Not to touch on that aspect of gender, but mm -hmm. you know, even though there are more women in parliament now, majority of them are men. Is it daunting or scary to you sitting in a room full of like firstly people who are a lot more older than you with many years of experience in, in politics and also being of like the minority race and gender, right? How has that been like? Yeah, I mean, I'm very lucky because within the party, um, I'm treated as an equal and, you know, even when we have discussions amongst all the Workers' Party uh, members of parliament, it's always an open discussion and I'm always invited to contribute my opinions mm -hmm. or views. But, you know, in parliament, it is pretty daunting, especially... Um, so I sit in the media gallery uh, because of COVID measures and the media gallery overlooks 
like the entire parliament and just stepping in and and seeing you know the speaker's chair and and um, all the other seats on the sides and things like that is is, is a pretty daunting experience and um, now because the telecasts are live so I, I always keep my like oh no <laughs> it's live you know I yeah I mean if, if I make a mistake or if I trip <laughs> I've had nightmares where like I trip because there are so many steps to the podium <laughs> So I've had nightmares or like I trip on the way to the podium and things like that. Um, so yeah, it is pretty daunting in Parliament. Mm. Yeah, I can only imagine like, yeah. I, I don't know, like how much do you usually like rehearse before you were to deliver like a speech, for example? So I work a lot on the content of the speech. Mm. Um, and then of course I do like rehearse quite a bit. And also, you know, I think about um, the questions that could be asked and, and how I, I would answer them. It takes a lot of time for me to prepare for parliament. And my team works really hard in researching the content and, and what the topics that I want to speak on. Like for example, for the adjournment motion, um, my team and I spent hours and hours and hours preparing it. And I spent um, you know just as much time rehearsing it and um, yeah, going through it again. Given your age, has there ever been an incident where outside of your party, you know, you were not taken seriously or like you felt like your opinions were not heard or you didn't have a space to share your thoughts? I'm very lucky um, because of the way my parents brought me up. So I grew up in a house where everyone's opinion mattered and because of that, I was given the confidence to, you know, always speak my mind. Um... So I, I carry that confidence with me, you know, where I go and, and when I have conversations. Mm. Mm. I think that's very important. I came from yeah. a household where, no lah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I think that, that has a really, that's a really important point because, you know, if you, you didn't come from a place where your, you felt like your opinions mattered, I think it translates into later parts of your life, right? And then yeah. you end up in situations where, you feel like you don't deserve to like take up space. Yeah. Or that your opinions are not valid. But many a times I think like everybody's opinion is valid. to a degree valid, right? Yeah. You are also a recent mother of two. Yes. So, yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> How has the journey of juggling motherhood and politics been for you? It's not been easy, but it's definitely been made easier because of the support I have at home. So my mom helps us care for our kids and, you know, very, very early on, even before my first son was born, we did have a discussion around gender roles and how we would navigate that within our relationship and how we would navigate the role of caregiving. Mm -hmm. And we did decide that, you know, it should be 50-50 and for the most part it has. So because his workday is a lot more structured. So in the evenings, he takes the children um, and during the weekends as well. So that's like usually when I'm the busiest on house visits, um, meet the people session and um, on a state walk. So he takes like a very, very proactive role mm. in, in that regard. Mm. Yeah. Firstly, is it unfair for me to ask you <laughs> whether it's been tiring? Because I feel like, um, I mean, typically this is a bit of like a contentious issue, right? Like I yeah. think people don't generally ask like men, for instance, like yeah. how has fatherhood been like? And yeah. for obvious reasons, or how has it changed a career Correct. Career when, you know, probably hasn't. <laughs> Correct. But I mean, it's it's also because, I mean, like as a, as a mother, mm-hmm. you, you do carry the baby to like yeah. full term and yeah. you do the delivery and like 
recovery is a long process. It can be yeah. very emotional. So I'm I'm very curious to know, like, has it been tiring for you? Especially since, I guess, being an MP is, like we were discussing just now, you know, it's a round-the-clock job. Yeah. yeah, I mean, definitely, like, it's being both physically and emotionally exhausted. Um, but because, like I said, my husband and I, like, share the role of, of being parents equally, um, we're both equally <laughs> exhausted. Mm-hmm. But I think it's important to talk about the struggles of caregiving and how much of a toll it takes on people. And and unfortunately, majority of caregivers are women. Mm-hmm. So I think it is important to talk about it in that aspect. You know, how do we move the conversation from, like, you know, how has motherhood impacted your career to um, how can we balance the role of caregiving at home? Mm-hmm. And that includes things like household chores, um, even, you know, cooking and and um, organizing our children's lives. Because it's not only the fact that you have to take care of your children, but you have to organize many things as well. And that takes an emotional, um, you know, toll on, on whoever is doing it. So I think it, it would be good to start having that conversation. I think we, we, we are moving towards having that conversation on how we can create a balance in, in, um, in our households. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's been slightly over a year since you know, you've, you've entered politics. It's also the one-year anniversary since a police report was made against you yes. for some of the racist remarks that you made on social media. And I was investigated. Yes. yes. <laughs> I can so, laugh about it now, but... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I I mean I when the whole incident was happening, I think so many things came to mind, right? The yeah. idea of like it was like political, it was also like a racial issue, and then there was this whole idea of like young versus old. There were so many like camps, the people supporting you, most of them were young people who, you know, saw that there were a lot of like racial inequality happening in the country. And then on the flip side, the older generation was not all, but some of them were a bit more opinionated about the fact that this was necessary yeah so yeah let's touch a bit let's talk a bit about that so it it definitely was a very tough time um but i think the only positive about that is it did bring conversations around race and inequality to the forefront Mm -hmm. of the election period i think especially with um young people so i think i mean to me that's probably the only positives that i that i see but it definitely did begin some very important conversations as well when I was on house visits, when I was speaking to residents who were, you know, um, from the older generation. Mm. And, um, you know, there were people who, who came to me and said, and, and these are older people who came to me and said, yes, you know, I did, I did experience or, or I did encounter racism. Um, but then, of course, there were also people who were saying, you know, um, what you did was wrong and... and um, they said it to your face. Yeah, yeah, they did. I'm someone who's not faced by tough conversations. Mm-hmm. So I think I saw that as an opportunity to have, you know, a very civil discussion on race um, and on inequality. And even though we didn't always always meet eye to eye at the end of the conversation, at least they were able to see that, you know, we could have a rational conversation mm-hmm. about it. And, you know, perhaps that was something that they wanted to see in, in their representative. We're taking a short break. This episode was made in collaboration with our pals at MSD Pharma Singapore, who lead It's Your Life SG, a HPV prevention campaign. Why is HPV such an important topic of conversation? HPV is the most common sexually transmitted infection today, and there is no treatment for the virus itself. 
Some really nasty HPV strains can also cause cervical and other cancers including cancer of the vulva, vagina or anus. On average, the risk of Singaporeans getting HPV at some point in our life is higher than us shopping online once a month, taking the bus or MRT to work daily, and even developing diabetes. By the way, we are seven times more susceptible to HPV than diabetes. For a nation of bubble tea drinkers? Wow. But incidentally, HPV is also extremely preventable through vaccination and screening. So essentially, we're telling you about a way to minimise your risk for a virus that you most likely get as an adult. And you're not jumping at it yet? You probably have somewhere close to 500 questions about HPV at this point, like how does it get transmitted? How do I protect myself against it? And what are the odds that I will get it? Sis, we've got you covered. Enter Dr. Liana Ko, an OBGYN and a longtime friend of this podcast. Like you, we had the same questions, so we enlisted the help of Dr. Ko to answer them in the next 30 seconds. Ready? Go! Will I get HPV from kissing? I think it's very, very rare. It's usually passed by actual sexual contact. What type of symptoms will result from getting HPV? Genital warts. And they kind of look like what we call cauliflower groves. Most people don't have any symptoms, so it doesn't really show up in that sense. Do I need to be protected from HPV if I'm in a committed relationship? Yes. Is it true that only women need to seek prevention? Both female and male can get the vaccine, and it's recommended, in fact. Curiosity peaked! We have a full episode titled My Mum and I Consult a Doctor About HPV that you can tune into if you are interested in hearing more about HPV. Actually, please do that. It's a really great episode breaking down myths and common misconceptions, addressing stigma, and just a really fun and great way to gain more knowledge. Knowledge is power, so check out It's Your Life SG for more information about HPV prevention and where you can find a clinic. Subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from to hear first when we post a new episode. You can also follow us on Instagram at somethingprivatepod and turn on the push notification for whenever we post something new. On that note, um, there has been a couple of incidents on like racism mm-hmm. that have occurred in the last couple of months. I think the really notable one is the one where the ex Nian Poly lecturer came mm-hmm. up to an interracial couple and verbally assaulted them. Yeah. And then the one with the this Hindu family who was trying to do their prayer rituals and then um, a Chinese woman coming to interrupt them. So I think I saw a lot of opinions that were like showing a lot of like disdain or like a lot of um, anger towards like these incidents of racism. But yeah. I think there were a whole variety of like opinions online, right? Yeah. I think my question to you is how does that make you feel when you saw cases like these? It definitely affects me to a very large degree. So I do feel very strongly about, you know, racism and and, um, its prevalence in our society. I I do have many, like, emotions and, and, I mean, you know, people think that emotions in politics is a bad thing, but I do feel like you you do need some some form of, you know, empathy Mm -hmm. and being able to understand what people are going through. So I do, I did feel like these incidences very deeply. And, you know, it did affect me for, for quite a while, especially because as a young mother, you know, I really do think about how I would raise my two children in this country. And, you know, I think that even though we see the racism that's very obvious and, and you know, a very um, aggressive, there is some form of undercurrent of racism in, in our institutions, like our schools, mm-hmm. um, our workplaces. So I, that's why, I mean, I did bring up the topic of racism in schools in parliament. And I did ask the question if we could publicize you know, the, the number of, of incidences of racism in schools. So we can know, you know, if, if this is a problem, 
um, and if it's something that we can address. And of course, you know, the Workers' Party, we have kind of campaign for anti-discrimination legislation in, in workplaces mm. um, to protect, you know, minorities. And this, this um, is not just, you know, racial minorities. It can also be, you know, people with disabilities yep. um, who, who, you know, may be discriminated in workplaces as well or, you know, um, stamping out misogyny that's mm. prevalent in some workplaces. Mm. Like mothers who go on, like, yeah. um, maternity leave and then return and then get, like, fired and stuff like yeah. that, right? Yeah. yeah. I think that's something that the women's rights group has been quite vocal about as well. Yeah. Mm. Interesting. So I think the whole conversation around like race, mm. it does feel like we keep having the same types of conversations. Yeah. So I think Channel News Asia recently did a piece on discussing like race again, I think like maybe a couple of weeks back. And they brought up that very notorious video of um, another MP basically asking some young adults about um, their brush with like racism and it feels the video was like in 2016 Mm -hmm. and it's very interesting because now five years later it feels like we are talking about the same thing Mm -hmm. you know we still are struggling with the same problems Mm -hmm. i think my question to you is is that does that feel frustrating for you do you feel like we have made little progress in terms of talking about race it's tough for me because i don't know what to measure this progress on Mm. so you know i'm still like reflecting and thinking about this um, but I did have a conversation with someone the other day and, you know, they said that progress looks like you. So someone like me was elected, a minority Malay MP um, who, you know, was also the youngest um, in recent history. So I think that I think should count as progress because, you know, for a long time, even for me personally, I didn't feel represented in parliament. Um, but now, you know, we have four opposition MPs who are from uh, minority communities so I think, you know, yeah, that does smell like progress to me. <laughs> yeah. That's very heartening to hear. <laughs> Rounding up our conversation about race, yeah. besides legislation, yeah. how does that look like on the day-to-day for the average Singaporean? Because I think for a lot of us tuning in, I think majority of like, on the side note, a majority of our listeners are quite like, young and quite yeah. like, aware, socially aware as well, right? How would you, I guess, advise them on furthering conversations about race? Um, So I think firstly, if you do encounter racism around you, um, don't dismiss it, especially if it's being done to, you know, someone that you know, or even just someone that that you work with or or, um, you go to school with. Um, I think that's important because a lot of times we're in positions of power and we do have the ability to call out these things. Um, And that can, you know, also apply to things like sexism. I think rejecting racism is important um, and it's an important first step. We haven't reached that point yet where we can have in-depth discussions on race um, and and come up with solutions. Especially with my interactions with um, all the different types of residents I meet, racism is still such a taboo subject. Mm -hmm. And I do feel that people can be so casually racist without knowing. So even things like casual racism and and microaggressions are not really spoken about, concerns about them are dismissed. And I think, you know, we really need to look at the impact of these um, very casual forms of of discrimination, Mm -hmm. um, especially on minorities, and to see, you know, how as a country we can progress forward. Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, I feel like as a nation, we need to do a bit of like soul-searching right, in general, I think with incidents of, like, 
race. I do think there's a gap in the generations. Mm-hmm. So I think the past generations didn't really see racism or, or didn't realize that what was happening was racist. Um, but I think now, you know, we're more aware of, of the struggles that each of us face. Um, and, you know, I think we are ready to have those very tough conversations. And I, and I mean, this was shown last year, like, you know, during elections. Um, I think it's just how can we have these conversations in an open um, and non-judgmental way and more, most importantly, come up with solutions, mm-hmm. um, you know, because I think having discussions over and over again doesn't really help us to move forward. Mm-hmm. So we really need to come up with concrete solutions. And, you know, I'm repeating myself, but like I said, one of them is non-anti-discrimination um, legislation. So we can start protecting our workers in their workplaces and, you know, and, and start creating a culture that doesn't accept racism, even in its most casual forms. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a complicated issue. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was going to ask also, I think like, I mean, on a bit of a side note, before we touch on other social issues, I think there are some people that are not even like from the older generation, but yeah. even people in our generation yeah. who, you know, feel like um, the whole discussion around race is very unproductive yeah because it's it seems in their words right like yeah. it's a situation where people are just like you said overly emotional yeah. you know about um like a microaggression and some of these people most of them are from like the majority race they find it counterproductive mm. i guess the question is how do we have like constructive <laughs> conversations right yeah. and like how much how much is too much in terms of like holding space for like somebody of a minority race who tells you that this is a difficult thing I went through, you know, yeah. I think that's very tough. Mm. I think, you know, there have been some attempts to hold these conversations. Um, but I think the first step is to recognize that there is a problem. Mm. Um, so I think even then there's a barrier. I think we recognize that very obvious forms of racism, like, you know, harassment yep. and assault, like like that person who was attacking this interracial couple, I think we can, we are able to recognize that, but I think where we haven't progressed is that we don't recognize the insidious forms of racism. Mm. So that's the racism that's in our schools, in our workplaces. Mm. And I do think that to have constructive conversations on that, we have to create an environment where minorities feel heard. I think it's important to include the major stakeholders in this conversation which is minorities Mm. and I think you know we should take a step step back and be more open to listening um, and to learning Mm. rather than just you know kind of try and stick some solutions down our throats Mm. yeah Mm -hmm. besides talking about racism I think Mm. you are personally quite invested in touching on social issues so you know you've you've touched on things like mental health You've touched on things like um, workplace harassment, you mm-hmm. know, sexual violence. And most recently, I think like last week, mm-hmm. you did your speech on how sexuality education is the first line of defense against sexual violence, mm-hmm. right? So tell me a bit about, yeah, like your experiences with like talking about social issues and like why this in particular now is important. Um, so it's important to me as, you know, these issues are the lived experiences of many and, you know, as someone who's been given the privilege to represent people in parliament, I do feel that it's important that we give 
people who are often unheard a voice mm-hmm. and you know that their um, issues and concerns are elevated. Mm-hmm. I asked a parliamentary question uh, a few months ago on how many cases of reported sexual assault there are in Singapore and the answer that was the answer was that from 2017 to 2019 there were almost 7500 reported cases of sexual assault. So that's six a day. Mm-hmm. So to me that number was you know shocking. It did show me that we need to address this in a very important and holistic way. So, you know, we started doing research on sexuality education and and how uh, minors are taught about boundaries, consent, bodily autonomy, and respect for one another. And we did see that there's only a nationally government mandated program that starts in primary five. Mm -hmm. So before that, they do have a few lessons here and there, but it's not structured and it's not um, mandated in, in, in every school. So I did think that, you know, it's important that we start in preschool because that's where children are building their foundations and that's where they learn to create boundaries and, mm-hmm. and um, things like that. So I think it's important that we teach consent in an open and, and um, non-judgmental way, especially to preschoolers. Mm. Yeah. I think I, I, a lot of us were, I, I, and I speak for myself and I think people within my community were really glad that you brought this up in Parliament because I think it's the first time that uh, MP has tackled such a specific topic on yeah. like sexual violence that's beyond like legislation, yeah. for example. And then touching about sexuality education can be quite like a taboo topic. Like yeah. Even now in like 2021, um, I think it's something that you don't often get like, you don't often hear politicians talking yeah. about. So thank you. I think that was no. great. <laughs> I think it's important that we distinguish sexuality education from just sex. So it's not about just sex. It's about learning consent. Uh, it's about learning, you know, um, respect for one another and also even learning about your own body. Mm-hmm. So learning about, you know, things like what's a good touch, what's a bad touch and learning how to speak out when something that makes you feel uncomfortable is happening to you. And I think there was some concerns as well um, that, you know, parents should be leading the conversation. Mm. But, you know, only 50% of parents in a survey that was conducted by AWARE are comfortable talking to their children about sexuality education. Mm. And not all children come from, you know, loving, Mm. um, caring homes. Mm. Some of them come from abusive homes. So if we don't reach to those children, we're, we're not really taking our responsibility um, of minors seriously. When you're on looking back on, on the journey, right, what are some of like the most, I guess, like memorable instances or like things that have made you feel like this has been worth the journey? Mm-hmm. So there are a few. Um, one was, um, so we were doing house visits and I bumped into this um, young girl and she was wearing the hijab. And she was um, coming to me in tears, actually, because she felt like, you know, she's never been represented before. Um, And she really felt like seeing me in the political arena gave her hope that, you know, in the future, maybe she could, you know, make a difference as well. The second one actually was one that really touched me in a time where I think I was going to a very, like, dark place. Um, So there was this hashtag on Twitter called Cats for Raisa, and I love cats. And that, like, during a time where I thought the world was, like, crashing Mm. around me and it was a really tough time. So, um, like, seeing that 
hashtag and like you know seeing people share their cats and, and pictures of their pets for me like there, there are even like um, parrots and even like some more exotic pets um, yeah it was really really touching and and I thought like it was such a symbol of um, how much compassion that the younger generation has um, and I think that's what that that's what I noticed during elections was that um, people who like were coming from a place of understanding empathy and compassion were a lot of the young people that I met mm. yeah. and I'm also thinking <laughs> <laughs> you actually hold a lot of like titles <laughs> yeah. yeah I mean there's definitely a lot of pressure um, but I think it's important you know to to always be kept on my toes mm. because you know I find this is a really really important job um, you know and I take it really seriously so I invest pretty much my whole life in it mm. um, I sacrifice a lot of things um, like my own career and and um, you know even time with my family but you know I recognize that I've been given a very important role and I yeah I do take it seriously mm. what what do the next three years kind of look like for you mm. personally and also for the rest of like your team I think, you know, the next three years look like a lot of hard work, mm. a lot of dedication, a lot of blood, sweat and tears. Um, but I think, you know, we, we are definitely looking forward to building our presence in Parliament mm. and um, to serve our residents as best as we can. So to run up our conversation, do you have any parting thoughts? A year and a half ago or even a year ago, I would never have imagined that I would be where I am today as a member of parliament and as a representative to a GRC. Mm. I hope that seeing me in this position, other people people would also be empowered to claim their um, stake in other positions of power. Cool. <laughs> Thanks, Larissa. Thanks no for coming worries. down. Thanks for inviting me. This is fun. <laughs> With that, season four has come to an end. I know you guys already miss my voice. Thank you guys for joining us in our journey in amplifying the voices of women across Southeast Asia. We really couldn't have come this far and told these many stories without you. So if you guys want to keep tuning in to something private, you have to give this video a like, leave us a comment, subscribe, and share about us with as many friends and family as possible. We'll see you guys soon. <laughs>